Welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nap Nasworth. I've been exploring the intersection of churches, Christians, theology, and public life for over 20 years as both a professor and a journalist. But I still have lots of questions. I invite you to continue learning with me as I interview interesting voices in this field. My hope is, that, and I'm really, I'm actually very serious about this. My hope is that scales will come off of eyes, that hardened hearts will be made like flesh, and that there will be true conversions, that these six presidents will actually embrace this experience as one that deepens their humility, softens their hearts, and makes them understand that they are but flesh and fallible, and that they have much to learn. I pray that it places these six presidents and all those who follow them into a learning posture, because that is what's needed. Critical race theory. How did these three words become so politically divisive? In the past four years, we witnessed police violence against people of color and a resurgence of white supremacist groups. But the real danger facing America, according to many Trump Republicans and evangelical Christians, is none of that. It's critical race theory, a little-known epistemology that was isolated to just academic circles until recently. In September, President Donald Trump banned federal agencies and contractors from conducting racial sensitivity training related to critical race theory. And in a campaign event that same month, he described critical race theory this way, quote, that hateful Marxist doctrine paints America as a wicked nation that seeks to divide everyone by race, rewrites American history and teaches people to be ashamed of themselves and be ashamed of their country, end quote. And last week, the presidents of all six Southern Baptist seminaries issued a joint statement condemning critical race theory, arguing, quote, in light of current conversations in the Southern Baptist Convention, we stand together on historic Southern Baptist condemnations of racism in any form, and we also declare that affirmation of critical race theory, intersectionality, and any version of critical theory is incompatible with the Baptist faith and message. My guest to talk about this is author, speaker, and activist Lisa Sharon Harper, president and founder of Freedom Road, which, according to its mission statement, seeks to work toward common solutions for a just world by shrinking the narrative gap. Ms. Harper previously worked for Sojourners and has a master's degree in human rights from Columbia University. In 2015, the Huffington Post recognized her as one of 50 Powerful Women Religious Leaders. She has authored many columns in major publications and many books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, and most recently, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, which was recognized as the 2016 Book of the Year by Inglewood Review of Books. Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome to the Protestants and Politics Podcast. Nap Nasworth, it is so great to be here today, and it's really an honor to be in conversation with your audience. Thank you for inviting me. 
Thanks. So first, I want to clarify just for our listeners that we're, we're talking here about the political angles related to critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- neither one of us claim to be experts on critical race theory itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but if you do want to learn more about that, then uh, Lisa has suggested some resources in a tweet thread that I'm going to be sharing in the podcast description. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. And actually, it's that tweet thread that first got my attention and decided to in- invite you to come on to talk about this. Yeah. So, yeah. So you you got a lot of praise and attention for what you said there. You were you were reacting to that Southern Baptist statement, and you had questions for those mm-hmm. presidents. A yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. Well, I mean, I was responding. I was responding to what literally felt. Um, I mean, I'm really going to just, I'm just going to say it. It felt a little bit insane because it, it literally was not sane. It wasn't, it wasn't cogent. It wasn't even logical. They were coming out as, as presidents of seminaries, which are educational institutions. And they came out against a theory that has nothing to do with their discipline area. It's a legal theory. It's, it's a theory that, that grew up out of, the, out of the legal discipline, the law schools. Literally, legal scholars developed this in the 1980s. And they came out as, as if it was something that came out last year. In fact, one of them in their smaller statements said, um, this is this something that came up in the last two years. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is not in the last two years. This is literally the last 40 years. Um, but, but more than that, it is a legal um, scholarly field of study, and they, as scholars, didn't even define it, let alone reckon with it. And that is just anti-academic. So I was, I mean, truly, I was truly incensed by by that, by their letter, by their statement, because it was obviously to me not what they were what they were claiming it to be, which was to be uh, a grounded moral declaration that stood on solid theological grounds. And at the very least, if it wasn't, they didn't prove that by any stretch. They just made statements um, of blanket uh, uh, with blanket claims and did nothing to back it up. And did nothing even to teach. And they're supposed to be presidents of seminaries. They did nothing even to teach anyone. Well, if grace, if critical race theory is so horrible, well, what is the thing? I think that the most insidious thing about it, and then I'll, I'll you know, <laughs> I'll be quiet and let you speak. But the most insidious thing about it was that they they claimed to do two things that are actually opposed to each other. They claimed to uh, to be against racism in all of its forms, which supposes that they recognize, and it, it implies that they recognize that it has multiple forms. And one of those forms, then, we know is systemic and structural, legal. Well, that's the entire foundational basis of critical race theory is that racism actually shaped the law and the law enforces it. That's that's the basic assumption, the basic theory of critical race theory. And it's funny to actually think that it is a theory 
The only reason we call it a theory is because it, it again, came out of academic world, out, out of academia. And in order to be scholarly, you have to have humility. And the humility says, well, I'm not going to declare that this is absolutely true um, until we can really, really prove it, you know, by scientific method. So we're going to have the humility to call it a theory um, until we can prove it. And But I'll tell you what, anybody who has lived under the oppression of racialized law knows that it's not a theory. This is reality. So it was, it's not only offensive that the Southern Baptist Convention, um, uh, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, seminaries, it's not only offensive that they came out against this theory. It's, it's literally like ostriches with their heads in the sand. They're refusing to see something that is obvious to any person of color who has an ounce of understanding of their own family struggles through the centuries in the United States of America. Yeah, my, my reaction was similar to yours in, in that you know, I, I don't know a lot about critical race theory, but I I did learn about critical theory upon which it's based. Yeah, and and so their their reaction. These are university presidents, and it's like they yeah they don't even understand how academia works. You yes. know, so in, <laughs> in academia, you know, people put out an idea, then people will criticize your idea, then you go back to the drawing board, you take their criticisms, and you work on it some more. You put out other ideas. Then people criticize those ideas and that's they'll go right. back and forth. You know, that's how academia works. And, the, and this whole notion, you know, in the statement says, we declare that affirmation of critical race theory is incompatible. Who's ever asked to affirm anything in, in the ac race? academia? <laughs> right. right. Like you that, don't... Critical race theory, by very definition, is about being critical. It's about, it's not about affirmation, it's about critiquing the way that we think. Um, Versus actually just uh, going with the flow, going going with the the status quo of the way things. And, I, 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 and here's the thing, Nap. I have a theory about why they would make that statement. Why would they be so against critical race theory? Well, because critical anything critical criticizes their their dominion, criticizes their hegemony on power, particularly in the South, anything critical, especially critical race theory, which developed in the 1980s, right after, uh, in the wake of the end of the civil rights movement, it was kind of one of the streams of the civil rights movement that moved into a different space after the assassination of Dr. King. Um, there was a stream of that movement that moved into the academy. And that's where it surfaced. And Dr. Derek Bell was the first person to begin to pontificate and think about, um, not really pontificate, but, but really critique the way that legal scholars were approaching um, how we understand how American law was formed. And I understand this just because I, I work in the realm of politics and also faith. And so much in both of those realms, when you're in a room full of white men who are talking about it, they will attribute things to everything but race. When you are a person of color listening to this conversation, you say, oh my goodness, like you are talking about 
you're talking about America as a democracy as if we've always been a full-on democracy. But don't you realize my own ancestors did not experience that democracy? It wasn't, we've never actually been a full democracy. When you understand the impact of law on democracy, law on the way we run our lives, because those laws limited the amount of agency, including the vote, on particular segments of our population. And so, so you, you just, you, critical race theory has at its, at its fundamental heart the understanding that, that our nation in its bedrock, some of the very first laws that were ever passed here, even when it wasn't our nation, when it was the English colony, but things that never got undone, even from that time, they were fundamentally shaped by the question of who would exercise dominion on this land. And the way that we as a nation, our, our legislators and our judges, as far back as 16, in the 1650s, actually, the way that our legislators decided to, to shape our country fundamentally was around the question of race and, that, and also gender and also in the same law, one law in 1662 established race was the very first gender law on American soil and also established citizenship. So there is that intersectionality which benefited, as far back as 1662, benefited white men from Europe. So it, it's not surprising to me that the Southern Baptist, um, you know, six presidents, all of whom are white men, would come out against intersectionality and critical race theory because both of those things basically take the hood off. They basically, both of, basically they, they both uh, reveal the ways that our structures and our laws have been set up to benefit them. And that revelation is a threat to them because once we know, once we understand that, then we can dismantle it. And dismantling it is the threat to them. It, it seems like that should immediately make sense to anyone who <laughs> believes in original sin. Yes, yes, exactly, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, that's such a great, that's a great point, Nap. Right? If you actually do believe in original sin, if you believe, that, if, even if you believe as they claim to believe that we are utterly depraved, well, why would we not be utterly depraved with regard to race? And how can we even look at our history? and say that we're not. And then how could we look at our history and look at the law and say, yeah, racism was everywhere except for the law. Are you kidding me? That racism didn't shape, it shaped everything, but not the law. It's only in our hearts, but our laws are fine. Our laws are, no. Human beings write laws in context. And so that context was one that was saturated with a fundamental belief in Western and white male Christian supremacy. It was explicitly so. It was not implicit. We look back at Jim Crow and slavery as an aberration, but slavery was able to exist in America for 246 years for a reason, because it was an assumed reality that white 
Westerners were called and created by God to exercise dominion over the world. And that everyone who was less than white, male, Christian, were not even fully human. These were the assumptions of of our world, of the Western world, I should say. Not everybody, but in the Western world, that was the assumption. And it's the assumption that fueled the entire, quote, age of discovery, which was actually the age of colonization, which actually then put the entire world under the thumb of England and France and Portugal and Spain and, and the Dutch. And it's only in 1960s that that began to be undone. So we are really, we are, we are still in the undoing of the age of colonization, which had as its bedrock the belief that white men are superior and are the only full human beings. We're only about 70 years from that belief being the assumed belief in, in, in the Western world. So how could we then look at, at, our, at American law and say that racism is not embedded in it, didn't shape it? Of course it shaped it. And as Christians, we should be looking at this, this thing that shapes American life and shapes the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and shapes the lives of those who we say we want to go and share Jesus with. And we should be wanting to lift that oppression off of their backs, not justify it in order to save our own illusion of ordained power. There's something else you brought up in that tweet thread I wanted to bring out a little. So uh, in the many years that you've spent working in uh, communities fighting racism, how often did you, did you come across critical race theory specifically? <laughs> I literally never. Like I literally never read a book on it. I literally never read an article on it. Um, the only time I ever heard the words critical race theory where they always were uttered out of the mouths of Calvinists and Neo-Calvinists and Southern Baptists who were trying to come against the work of racial reconciliation, racial justice, racial healing that was happening inside the church. Inside the church. You hear me? So for them to call it communist, for them to call it secular, I mean, what basically it's a way to try to stop the trans the, the the transformation, the healing that would require them to recognize that they are not the only ones called by God to exercise dominion in the world. In fact, every single human being on earth is called by God to exercise dominion in the world. Dominion meaning agency stewardship, the cultivation of, making decisions that impact the world. Well, if you don't want to share power, then you figure out a way to undercut that belief. And the fastest way to do that in the South, um, and particularly among among folks who uh, who are kind of conditioned to simply believe what they say and not, not question it, is to call it communist, call it secular, you know, Without any proof, not only no proof, but just no no basis, no basis. It's well documented. I mean, there are whole books about this. There are volumes that document the beginning of of critical race theory 
Derek Bell is not like, this is not something that was developed, you know, in the, in the 17th century that is debatable. Derek Bell developed it in the 1980s. I was in high school and college in the 1980s. Like, you know what I mean? Like this is contestable and provable and it's proven. <laughs> so let's move on. And I think that what they're saying, I mean, the way that they do it, the, the gymnastics, the logical gymnastics that they do is they say, and when I say they, I mean, you know, those who are influencing those six presidents, right? They say, well, critical race theory came out of critical legal theory, right? And critical legal theory has basis in Marxist thought. Yeah, but Derek Bell in, in his earliest writings on critical race theory said, I am not following that line of thought. <laughs> I am breaking with Marxist theory because Marxist theory does not recognize the impact of race. That's the whole point. Marxist theory is economic theory. Marxist theory says that the whole world is run by economic. It's a class warfare. But that's not what critical race theory is about. In fact, critical race theory, the whole point of it is to break with that is to say even more than class, the thing that defines our course of life in the Western world because of the colonial project is race. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, Trump is actually more Marxist than crystal, critical race theory because he's the one that ma is making class-based arguments and saying he's the, yes. the candidate of the working class and so forth. Yeah. Well, yes. And and, and not only that, but he, he's the actual Mar Marxist because he's literally doing Putin's bidding. I mean, this is the most ironic thing, the most ironic thing. And I think the thing that, uh, maybe it's the thing that sent me over the top is that you have people who are doing this work in order to preserve the presidency of a man who literally basically sold out America, uh, according to the Mueller report. Um, it's, it is illegible and not proven because it hasn't been taken to court because you can't take the president to court. Um, uh, and so, you know, by the grace of, of precedent, uh, Trump was not hauled into court by what he did, but we know what he did. And what he did was to sell out America. Um, why? To gain food favor with a Marxist, with Putin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just think it's, you know, I mean, I hate to, you know, I just, I just think it's incredibly ironic. And it's amazing to me that people don't talk more about that. Haven't, we aren't, we aren't saying that more. It's um, it's it's mind games. It's a mind game that I refuse to play. So that's that's part of the reason why I did my tweet thread, my Twitter thread is that I want it. I'm all about clarity, and I I just want to let's just be clear. This is what is actual. Now you can deal with this. Let's let's deal with this, but don't don't speak out of both sides of your mouth. Don't say on one side of your mouth that you're all for um, uh, coming against all forms of racism. And then on the other side of your mouth, condemn two street fields of study that rise out of the black community, CRT and intersectionality with Kimberly Crenshaw, which require that you understand inter the intersections of identities and oppressions. As a white man, you wouldn't because 
you you don't have any of those intersections. You're literally at the top above the intersections. As a black woman, on the other hand, I understand that. Not only am I deemed black by the state, but I am also woman. And so, and 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 now, you know, I was in in the Twitter thread. I talked about my next book is traces ten generations of my family back to 1682, and so you know that that generation bore the brunt of those very first race laws, and those race laws were not just race. Like I said, that same law that was passed in 1662 and 1664 in Maryland, where my ancestors were. It was also the first gender-based law on this soil. So my body holds the intersections. It's not a theory that you can come against. Yeah, I think you're right about the timing. There's just no way that this could be interpreted as just sort of a, a random coincidence that just happened to come out at this time. I mean, here we are in 2020 with so much going on. We have a pandemic. We have uh, all the racial justice protests that took place this year. And now we have a president challenging the results of the election. Mm -hmm. The Southern Baptist Church is like losing members like crazy. And in the middle of all this, the Southern Baptist Seminary presidents got together and said, oh, we need to make a statement about critical race theory. I mean, <laughs> oh, wait, that, that can't be random. Yeah, no, it's random and it's not, right? Because it's, it's, it's all that and it's the timing of the Georgia runoff. And, I, and I, I ended with that, that I actually think that the reason why they did this, and it's not even they, the reason why Al Mueller did this, the reason why he did this was to organize um, – Southern Baptists to not vote for Democrats and not just Southern Baptists, but anybody who's influenced by them, even PCAers or things like that, people like that, um, to not vote for Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and then John Ossoff. The reason why they wouldn't want, why would that one Senate seat, like those two Senate seats be so important? Why would Al Mueller organize six Southern Baptist convention presidents because of power because he knows and ironically the exact same day that i put out that twitter thread he tweeted about about um the necessity for white uh conservatives or not he didn't say white but republican conservatives in the south in atlanta in georgia to get off their off their you know took us and to make sure they vote because this election means everything he said it can change everything. This senatorial seat, which is why he would go through the problem, the trouble of organizing six seminary presidents to say what they said when they said it. Well, I, I wonder, though, if the influence is in the opposite direction, because we know Mueller is running to be the next Southern Baptist president, president of the convention. Uh, and he used to be like a never Trumper, basically. And so I wonder if this is a situation of the flock influencing the leader instead of the leader influencing the flock. Possibly, but I don't think that any of those six those six uh, presidents have the political wherewithal to do the organizing that it took. And when you look at the statement, it's it's Mueller's statement that's the longest and the final statement. It actually reads like the statement itself. It's almost like he wrote the statement and then they all added a paragraph. You know what I mean? Hmm. So yeah. when I look at the structure of the statement, and I know because I've done many of these statements myself, it, it reads to me like he he's the one who organized this. Hmm. And it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, 
what used to be uh, secular humanism. It's like there always needs to be a boogeyman in evangelicalism, you know? Yes. And I know when, when I was growing yes. up in my 20s, young evangelical, it was always like secular humanism. That's the thing you have to fear. Yeah. Then I get to grad school and it's like nobody ever talks about it. This is like <laughs> something from 40 years ago that's just like people just kind of gave up on, but it's still like, for the evangelicals, that's the boogeyman that you have to go after. It's so true. So it seems like critical race theory has sort of replaced that now. Yeah, but you know, actually, let me just say, this also harkens back to the civil rights movement. I mean, in the South, one of the main things that they used to, to try to discredit Dr. King, Rosa Parks, anyone who was a, a part of the, the um, civil rights movement, they called them Marxists. That's what they did. So to be against segregation in America was to be Marxist, to be for the full inclusion of all people was to be Marxist. But I have to tell you that that, that framing is actually a white, a white nationalist framing in itself, or at least a white supremacist framing in itself, because it doesn't take into consideration other sources than a white source. Like you, you're assuming by calling it Marxist that the only source that could be a source for thought is a Western source. Well, no, there are other sources. And in fact, those sources go back to black um, preachers and writers um, and, and uh, philosophers and, and uh, theolo theologians in Africa, as far back as Africa, you know? And so, and I, I mean, I just want as far back, I mean, as far back as our roots in Africa before slavery, um, you have, you have people who are, are fighting for freedom um, and, and, and speaking in terms of the gospel, seeing um, Jesus, the brown, colonized, indigenous Jesus fighting um, to have the image of God set free from the oppression of imperial rulers on earth. You see that. You see that. In, uh, in black church thought going back even to um, James Fortin and Philip Allen and Absalom Jones. You don't need Marx. Hmm. Just thinking about the future, what, what is your hope now for the Southern Baptist Convention? Hmm. <laughs> what is my hope? You know, I'll tell you what, when I'm, when I'm full of Jesus, <laughs> when I am, you know, when I am like, when I'm full of Jesus, my hope is, that, and I'm really, I'm actually very serious about this. My hope is that scales will come off of eyes, that hardened hearts will be made like flesh, and that there will be true conversions, that these six presidents will actually embrace this experience as one that deepens their humility softens their hearts and makes them understand that they are but flesh and fallible and that they have much to learn. I pray that it places these six presidents and all those who follow them into a learning posture because that is what's needed. Um, my last, actually my last podcast episode on the Freedom Road podcast was with Wes Granberg Michelson. He just put out a book called Without Oars. Um, and I just think it's the most necessary book for white men probably ever written <laughs> and certainly written in the last year. 
um, he, it's needed right now. And thank God it came out right now. But it's, it's really about how, um, particularly in the white church, the, the most fundamental ideology is the need for control, to control thought, to, con- to control people. Um, Wes has an incredible analysis of, of the Western church and the history and, um, and, and what it's done to the white faith mind now the white faith uh formation now and what's needed and you know so he he uh harkens back to an irish um i'm not sure if it's a poem or a fable but it's basically the image of um the ones setting out on the sea and tossing their oars into the sea so the sea itself actually guides them and he talks about the wind of the spirit being the thing that guides now and he says that it is not um, he has he has less belief in beliefs now, now that he's actually been on pilgrimage. So it's really a call to understand that we are actually in the midst of a transition, a, a time of transition in the world. Um, we talked about in our conversation about the reality that we are moving from a time in the world where you had a dominant group, people of Western descent, people of European descent, um, throughout the whole rest of the world. If you take the global community, Western uh, Western civilization is already in the vast minority. Um, the Southern Hemisphere is the majority world now, um, and and yet when you look at the Church, at the Western Church, still the centers of power, the ones who who are understood to be ordained to. Um, to determine and define everything, to define and determine the the boundaries of orthodoxy, that's that's located in the hands of white men still. And so what what Wes says is that you know, the reality is is there are other ways to do Christianity than we have found in the Western Church, and not only are there other ways, but quite honestly, there are closer ways to the people to Jesus himself, because Jesus was not Western. Jesus was um, Middle Eastern, and that's even a, a modern term. He was actually Afro-Asian. And so, you know, we don't, we we have been so deeply shaped by our racialized world that we don't even recognize it anymore. And so my hope, my my, my deepest hope for those six presidents and also anybody and everybody who follows them is that this would be a wake up moment where, where the Western church, not only the Southern Baptist convention, because it's not only limited there, it's literally, it per, it's pervasive throughout the entire Western church would cast their oars into the sea and allow themselves to be led by God, mostly through others who have been suppressed, whose voices and stories have been marginalized, but whose voices and stories live closer to the social location of our brown colonized Jesus. You mentioned in the tweet thread that you're currently working on your next book. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us about that? I am so excited for this next book. And honestly, I should be writing it right now, but I'm talking to you. (laughs) 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 This is love, right? Yeah, exactly. Like love for the cause, you know? So, but I mean, I'll I'll tell you, I think 
I was inspired to write this next book, which is called Fortune. When I began to uh, get deeper into my own family research and my mom and I, it's one of the ways that we've bonded over the years um, is to, you know, do ancestry.com and say, oh, look what I found, you know, that kind of thing. And so we, we've been searching for 30 years, really, for pieces of our family. And when I started to realize I'm, I have a lot of history here. Like, because I'm finding out more about my family, I'm finding out more history. And I, and looking at our current society, the reality is we need healing. We need healing bad. We are at the place of implosion, mainly because the truth has been hidden about the things that happened here. It's been hidden by the the, the construction of kind of, acceptable histories, acceptable narratives of history that are acceptable to the majority because these narratives that they have crafted, they, they don't threaten them. They, they, they do not push against the hegemony of whiteness. But man, when you go into the family histories of people of color, you just can't deny what happened. And when I got back to the, when I finally, you know, found the earliest ancestor which we believe um, were two two people who came um, within five years of each other to America on two separate ships. Um, one came on a ship a ship from Northern Ireland. Um, she was a, a Ulster um, Ulster Scott, and the other was a Senegalese man, either Senegalese or from Guinea. Um, and he he was enslaved uh, in Maryland. Both of them were in Somerset, Maryland. 1682 for the Northern Ireland uh, ancestor Maudlin McGee and 1687, 86 actually for Sambo Game. And part of the reason why we know he's from either Guinea or from uh, uh, Eastern um, Senegal is because the, the name Sambo comes from that area and it means second son. So now, so now we know something about him. He was the second son of someone in that region, and he was stolen. He was taken to this land. And they had a child. They met and actually had an affair because she was already married. Hello, somebody. Um, and they had a child, and her name was Fortune. And Fortune ended up in court in, I believe, 16, 1705 or 1715, one of those two. She ended up in court, and... Uh, because of laws that have been passed over the over the previous 40 years, she ended up being indentured for a number of years and her children because of these race laws and gender laws um, and all related to interracial um, relations. And so that's the significance. Now I understand the significance of the loving decision in the 1960s because in, it was in Virginia that those first anti-misogynization laws uh, took place, and they took place in the context of those first race laws. So the reversal of the loving, um, again, going back to the law, the reversal of, um, of uh, anti-misogynization laws was actually kind of the unmooring of legal racism in America. It was the unraveling of it. And since then, you know, we live in a world where that where it no longer is, and we we don't we can't imagine a world where that is. But those anti-misogynization laws were on the books from 1662 
1967. That's 300 years. So, and the only reason I know this now is because I did that research. So the book goes back through 10 generations, not through the same line of my family, but multiple different lines of my family and asks the question, how did race break us? Us, my family and us, the world. And how can we be repaired? How can we repair what race broke in the world? Wow. That sounds (laughs) fascinating. Yeah, and heavy. I'm sure you're, it must be a very emotional time for you to, to be writing this. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. I mean, you know, it's really kind of funny because I had a deep conversation um, with one of my friends uh, last week, actually, when I realized, it was two weeks ago, when I realized that I've been avoiding writing this one chapter I'm writing right now um, because I know, I know the brutality of what's happened in that line of my family. And as I'm researching it, I have to relive it to some degree, right? Like there's some way, there's some way that I have to enter into it. And so I've been avoiding it. I mean, doing everything but writing that chapter. And and so, yeah, it's been a struggle. It really has been a struggle. But I think that my goal in the writing is not to brutalize everybody, right? But it is actually to help us to understand why our families are the way they are now, why um, we have... Uh, the issues we have in our educational system, our healthcare system, our um, why we have uh, an inordinate um, and inequitable distribution of deaths um, among people of African descent in America um, now from COVID. It's not just by happenstance and it has nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with our history, with the, the land that we've been relegated to. I can speak to that now because now I know the land that my own ancestors were relegated to. Um, it's always been the outer, the outskirts. It's always been the swamp land. It's always been um, the ghettos. It's always been the unhealthy places. And that still rings true to this day. It's not swamp land now. Now it's, it's food deserts, right? But we zone the good stuff to go to white folk. And we zone the bad stuff literally I mean, positively zone the bad stuff, fast food to go into neighborhoods that are people of color, neighborhoods of color. So when you understand that, um, especially in relationship to your own own family, it it, it takes it out of the realm of politics and and it, it makes us understand how human these questions are and how they're impacting us. And how they can be repaired. Because look, if we are making decisions that are hurting each other, that means we can make decisions that bless each other. For more information about Lisa Sharon Harper, follow her on Twitter at Lisa S. Harper, or you can visit her website, lisasharonharper.com, where you can find links to her Facebook page and Instagram page as well. Uh, the Freedom Road website is freedomroad.us. Anything else? Or did I cover everything? <laughs> it's a lot. But actually, let me just say that we really, we would love to to have interaction. We'd love to get to know your your listeners. And, you know, we have a lot of ways to go deeper at Freedom Road, particularly through our Institute for Individuals. So folks, please check out the Institute because there are really great webinars, boot camps, coaching opportunities, and growth communities that are available there. Lisa Sharon Harper, thanks for joining the Protestants in Politics podcast. Thank you, Nat. Thanks for listening. 
This episode was recorded on December 10th of 2020. Be sure to check out the Protestants and Politics newsletter as well. You can find information about that and about me on my website, napnasworth.com.